If you approach them with a query and they give you an assignment, that's an assignment, kiddo. Find out what you're being paid. And find out what the kill fee is. Got to do it. And don't think that I do it just because I've been 30 years at it and I, I got some clout. I did it from the first story out. It's one of the things you learn. And that's one of the other truths about writing that I wanted to tell you. You know the thing about big money. I'll tell you, writers make big money. As you'll know if you sell something and all your friends suddenly come to tap you. How many of you has that happened to? How many of you has that happened to? Yeah? I got a job on the Twilight Zone. If, if I go on too long, stop me. I'll stop whenever you want. Uh, never? <laughs> never. Um, I got a job on the Twilight Zone. Uh, I'm the creative consultant for the series, which comes back in September on CBS. And uh, all of a sudden, people I haven't heard from in 20 years. My best friends. You know, and they're sending me stories, and they're calling me in the dead of night, and can you get me a job and do that? And I said, no, I can't get you a job. And if I could, I wouldn't. Why would I? You know, who the hell are you? What'd you ever do for me? Fuck you. What a guy. I want you to understand something. Success has not altered me in any way. I am the same prick I was right from the beginning. How about Well, this is the this is the lecture. That's what they're you know, I'm getting big bucks to do this. I also got a steak the size of a Brillo pad in the dining room tonight. Do you believe that? One cow lasts three years at, this, at the Miramar. And I, you know, I don't want to talk about the quality of the meat, but in life, this was not a happy creature. I want to tell you, I want to tell you John, are, are, there, are there any, are there any of, of Irish extraction here tonight? Oh, I have a terrific Irish joke for you. You gotta hear this. It's, it's real short. It's real short. But it's a terrific story. It, it chanced to pass that uh, 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 on the desk of the Mother Superior of a very small convent in Ireland, one day poof, popped into existence two leprechauns. They just poof, it, there they are, and they're on the desk. And one of them is haranguing the other one. He said, "You're a stupid fool. You're a stupid fool. I told you you're a stupid." And the other one, "Shut up! Shut up! You spalpeen! I'll lay up aside your head with a with a fountain pen here." Le, le, yeah, yeah, Mother Mother Superior, excuse me, Mother Superior. Tell me something. Here, here in the convent, he says, how, how, how many leprechaun nuns do you have? <clears throat> so the mother superior, who is handling this rather well, she's not running around screaming bugfuck. I mean, she's not, you know. <laughs> and so she, says, she says, well, uh, uh, we don't, uh, in this order, we, do, uh, uh, we, we don't have any uh, leprechaun nuns. So the first one goes, ha, 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 little, little, little. I told you you were damn fool. I told you. He said, shut up, shut up, I'll knock you down. I swear to God. Uh, mother, mother, mother superior said, uh, uh, let me ask you that. In, in all of the holy sod, in all of Ireland, he said, how, 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 how many leprechaun nuns would you say there are? I mean, I have a rough target figure, just a, you know, ballpark figure, as it were. How, how many leprechaun nuns do you think there are? And she said, well, you know, uh, I do work for the archdiocese here, and I know almost every sister in Ireland, and I, I must tell you that, um, to my certain knowledge, there is no such thing as a leprechaun nun in Ireland. So the first one gets, he goes crazy, jumping up, and the other one knocks him in the head, knocks him down. Now, hysterical. The first one says, Mother, then tell me, Mother Superior, in the, in the entire body of Christ, we're talking here the entirety of the Catholic Church, all the way from Greenland, where there are good Catholics, I know, all the way to Brazil, tell me that there are, in fact, a few leprechaun nuns. Mother Superior says, I, I can't lie to you, little man. I, I wish I could, but I can't. There's no such thing as a leprechaun nun, no such thing. The first one says, ha, 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 I told you you fucked a penguin. Thank <laughs> you.
it, folks. That's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I mean, I'm really making an attempt to give you wisdom here, but he wants, you know, he wants to hear about me on the Merv Griffin show, which is a nightmare. I mean, it's straight out of Hieronymus Bosch, and, and they want to hear his story. I'll go through it real fast because I, 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 I want to I tell you some of the other lies. That there's, a, there's the lie that a track record makes it easier to sell again. That's a lie, unless it's in the same genre. If you sell a mystery, yeah, you can sell another mystery. If you sell a science fiction novel, yeah, you can sell another one. Another Western, yeah. Don't try to break out. Track record doesn't mean squat. Unless you're Stephen King, in which case it doesn't matter. <laughs> Steve's a good writer, by the way. I like, uh, Stephen is, is, you never get cheated with a Stephen King. But Stephen King is about to break every rule that the publishing industry has ever known. The, 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 the true writ has it that you must not come out with more than one book a year by a writer because it will dissipate the market. Stephen is about to come out with five books in 14 months. And every one of them will go right to the top of the bestseller list. He is a phenomenal sui generis. There's never been anything like him. They estimated, they took a survey, and they estimated that one out of every six books held by someone sitting in an airport terminal in America on any given day is a Stephen King book. Could be worse. Could be worse, folks. Could be Eric Siegel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another one of the li li lies about writers that everything is seen as Roman Cliff. Everything you write is based on you. Robert Block wrote a book called Psycho. People believe he is a psycho. The man is the gentlest, sweetest, nicest man you'd ever want to meet. Honest to God. He loaned me $200 when I came out to California. First time I was destined, absolutely broke, flat broke. I had a dime when I got here, when I got to Los Angeles. Bob didn't get that money back for four or five years. Never asked me once because he knew I didn't have it. Uh, you write a book uh, with a homosexual in it, you've got to be gay. Uh, you write a book in which a woman is kicked in the head by the horse, your wife must have been kicked in the head by the horse. They will do this to you, your readers. They will try and find out what in your book is Roman Eclat that you have taken from your own life. They do not understand that you get it from everywhere and that writers are professional liars. And that's what you do. Writers are like their works. Writers are what they write. Writers know the big secrets. There you all sit, and you have listened to any number of us, this conference, last conference, back to the dawn of time, and we all tell you the same thing. It all comes down to, if you don't hear the music, you can't do it. That's all there is to it. Nobody can teach you how to write. They can teach you the plumbing. They can teach you how, where to put a semicolon. They can teach you how to begin a paragraph. They can teach you how to grab somebody with a, with, a, with a good narrative hook. But if you can't hear the music, you cannot do it. And writers do not know the big secrets, folks. Because you are writers, and I'm a writer, and I'm telling you true. I don't know shit. This is like the great international Jewish money conspiracy that you keep hearing about. You understand? Jews have all the money. Now, I'm a Jew, and all I can tell you is there's got to be some kike out there with two shares, because he's got mine, because I work very hard for my money. The writing gets easier. <laughs> sure, not in this life, kids. The writing doesn't get any easier at all. By the time you're good enough to know what the hell you're doing and be able to write that stick properly, the arthritis gets you. I can tell you about that. The hemorrhoids will get you. It's got to happen. You go out of vogue. You can't find the ideas. Every time you write, it's work. 
Now, I happen to like that work. I'm not one of those writers that says, oh, I hate writing. God, I can't stand it. Mailer always does that crap. I hate that. Oh, I hate writing. Jesus Christ, I'd rather be doing shoveling shit than doing this. <laughs> you know, well, go follow a dream, you, you nit. You know, don't give me that crap. Writing is great pleasure. I finished a screenplay two days ago. I swear to God. You know that scene in Fantasia, Night on Bald Mountain, where the mountain opens and the... That's what I felt like. I was absolutely holy. There's a... Takata and fugue is in my head when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm hot. When the work is right, there's nothing like it. It's better than food, it's better than sex, and I understand it's better than dope. I don't use dope, so I can't tell you, but those of my friends who do use it tell me that when they're hot, it's better than anything. And that, of course, that, of course, is chocolate. It's the darkest chocolate in the world. And once you've tasted it, forget it. You're trapped. Writers write for an audience. Only if they're fools. There's a writer, dead now, named James Schmitz. James H. Schmitz used to write science fiction. Wrote a couple of stories for a magazine called Analog, and the audience just loved those stories. Man, they couldn't get enough. So he wrote another one like that, and another one like that, and another one like that, and another one like that. In a 25-year career, he did three books, maybe, and a couple of dozen stories. All the same. All the same. His talent never went anywhere. He never expanded. Don't write for an audience. Stop thinking what it is an editor wants to read. Stop thinking what it is your mommy wants to read. Stop thinking what it is you think people want to read. That's crap. Write what you have to write. If the core of what you're doing does not burn, it is a lie. And it is no good from the start. You may be able to carry it off and fake it, but not for very long and not to any great end. Write for yourself. Write for the most literate, witty audience you can find, and that's you. If you don't, you're going to wind up writing crap, and they're going to reject the crap, and then you're not even going to be able to have your own self-respect that you wrote what you needed to write for yourself. You'll have written what they wanted, or what you thought they wanted, and it will be garbage. <laughs> Writers spell well and have a full command of the language. Folks, I have been an editor. I have read the stuff that comes over the transom. The word language only has two A's in it. Trust me. I'll tell you the truths real fast, and then I'll do a story. Oh, wait, yes, ma'am. I just wanted to ask you, how do you handle a situation where a publisher is asking you, or an editor is asking you to do a rewrite? Ladies asking me, uh, how do you handle a situation in which an editor is asking you to do a rewrite of someone else's work? No, of your own. Of your own. They say, we like it, but if you'll change such and such and such. I'm a bad one to ask that. <laughs> if you want to sell it, you probably should change it. Change it only as much as you're able to live with. Don't do things to a story that you can't stand. If it was good enough for one editor to want to buy, another editor will want to buy it too. That's probably likely. I don't change anything unless I really think they know what they're talking about. I know more than they do. I wrote it. It's mine. They want it, they write, they've got to publish what I wrote. That's why I stopped doing my column for the LA Weekly. They started potchkeying with my copy. I said, our deal was I write them, you run them. You don't want to do it, I motor. And I got in the breeze, that's what I did. I feel very strongly about that. I feel very strongly about that, but it's not good advice to give to people like you. It's not, it's not good advice, I know the difference. I mean, I know what works for me, and, and, I, and I tell you, be ameliorative, be um, open to suggestion, but only if it's logical. Uh, uh, Lee Goldberg was telling me that, uh, where's Lee? 
Hi, Lee. Uh, correct me if I do it wrong. Um, uh, the producer, uh, he's, got, he's got a movie. There's a movie coming up. And uh, a guy who was an attorney who became the head of production for, for a studio, an attorney who became the head of production, right? a businessman in charge of an art form, said to him uh, in this particular movie, uh, the governor should not be trying to murder all of his opponents because he wants to be elected and he's killing off all of his, uh, his competition. Uh, it's that he's gay and he's trying to hide it. That isn't what the man wrote and that isn't what he wants it to be. You will find that a lot of people in this life envy and hate you because you can create. And they can't. And they think you possess magical, mystical powers. And if they can't have them, it's like people who want to fuck power. Kissinger got laid a lot. <laughs> There's a thing about doing it to power. And they want to have a piece of it. It's the old story about the, uh, the chef uh, the, the chef who says, oh, you have made a great soup. It is a great, it is par excellence. It is one of the greatest potage I have ever seen. I will now make it better by pissing in it. Right? <laughs> Particularly at movie studios and in television. A lot of people want to piss in your soup. And... Um, Editorial suggestion is a good thing if it's a good editor, if you trust the editor, if you think the stuff works. There are not an awful lot of good editors in the country at the moment. The Maxwell Perkinses are gone. There are very few. The last good editor I knew was a woman named uh, Victoria Chen Heider, who was the fiction editor at Playboy and who went down in a plane crash at Chicago uh, O'Hare Airport a number of years ago. Uh, I, I grievously miss her. She knew how to edit. Be careful. Don't listen to a lot of suggestions from your friends. Don't listen to a lot of suggestions from other writers. Don't listen to a lot of suggestions from this one or that one or the other. If you're going to stand or fall, stand or fall on your own. You either know how to write or you don't. An editor, if an editorial suggestion is, uh, is acceptable to you, do it. If it, if, it, if it grinds your heart, don't do it. Your allegiance is always to the work. At least that's my opinion. Okay. Okay, here are some of the truths about writers, most writers. Most writers have not one scintilla of business sense. They don't know how to keep a checkbook. They don't know how to keep their files. They don't know if the story's been copyrighted in their name. They don't know what to do with their remainders. They don't know jack shit. And as a consequence, they constantly have to keep writing, 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 writing just to stay ahead of the game. If they were able to understand that what they do is cottage industry, they would be a lot better off. Set aside a certain part of your day for the business of keeping your act together. Make sure you know where a manuscript is. Know when it went out. Know when you want to call to find out what's happening to it. All of this stuff is very important. It's piddling and it's time-wasting and it's a drag. And most writers I know think that they can get away with being slobs. Yeah, they can. And they've been writing for 30 years and have written an enormous body of work and none of it's in print because they don't remarket the books. Another truth. Writers are too quick to be cowardly and self-effacing. Writers are timorous, frightened little beasties. They live off the scraps from the editorial table. Well, what should I do? I mean, he, he said the book was okay, but I had to rewrite the whole first third of it, and, you know, he won't, you know. Here's another one. Yeah, they, uh, they promised me $100, but uh, they sent me 20 bucks, and, uh, you know, and they said I signed this work-for-hire contract, and so I'm not supposed to get any more. Well, then say something about it, man. Raise a stink. Well, no, he'll never uh, hire me again. Oh, in other words, he'll never have the opportunity to stick it up your ass again, right? <laughs> How tragic for you. <laughs> Understand something. If you can write, you got a corner on the market. 
You can do what no one else can do. They gotta come to you for the product. It's your product and they can't get some other jerk to do it. They can get all the Jacqueline Suzannes and Eric Siegels and Harlequin romance writers they need. But if your stuff has something that they want, they have to come to you. So for Christ's sake, hold out. Don't sell yourself like a dime store harlot. Writers don't stay au courant. Writers don't know shit about what's going on. I mean, how many of you who are writers and are, and are of my age say, know what rock groups people are listening to today? How many of you know what the name of the island in the, you know, where, the, where, the ho where the hotel Aswan Oberai is located is? How many of you uh, understand, uh, uh, Paul Lazarus tonight was talking about hay and straw. If you were going to have a dinner of hay and straw, what would you be having? You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. I was wearing a t-shirt today at the cocktail party. T-shirt had a legend on it. It said, I'd give it an 85. It's good to dance to, but I wouldn't buy it. Most of the people who came up and looked at it, looked at it and went. <laughs> Lee Goldberg, 23 years old. He says, am I stupid or just too young? Both. <laughs> you got to know everything. If you don't know everything, you're stupid. Don't you understand? You gotta have it all at your fingertips. You gotta read everything you can lay your hands on. You gotta subscribe weekly to Science News and to the New York Times and to Newsweek God Save Our Souls. You gotta know every goddamn thing. You gotta know every reference that could possibly come up. You've gotta know every little thing that could possibly be of use to you in a story. If you don't, you're not doing your job. A writer has very few tools. You got a typewriter or a word processor, whatever the hell you use. You got your brains, you got your fingers, you got the English language, and you've got the background and the log of all the information that's in the world. You cannot know enough. You've got to know it all. And if you don't, you're lying to your readers and you're lying to yourself. And that's why most writers are not au courant. Writers do not take res risks in their personal lives. Not since Emile Zola. Very few writers can be counted on to stand up and do anything. Once in a while you find people like Kurt Vonnegut, you find people like Ed Doctorow, you find people like like, uh, I don't know, who, you know, the ones, the ones you always hear their names are the ones who are always being arrested. You say, God. <laughs> so you all act like the late George Apley. Oh, why aren't they being decorous like writers? <laughs> Writing does not have much to do with pretty manners. Remember what Jeffrey Wolf said? Take a few risks in your personal life. I think you will find folks that it will get you in a lot of hot water, it will cost you money, it will fuck up your relationships, and it may help your writing. None of the things I tell you are pro-survival pro except, except get paid. There is a thing called the I am a camera syndrome. I know like of this. The I am a camera syndrome means I will not get involved in real life. I will stand and watch. And by the purity of my distance. You want me to stop? I'm running over. You want to do workshops? Oh, uh, 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 Tell me how much more, Paul. I'll do, do whatever. You, I'll stop whenever you want. Five minutes. Five minutes. You got it. Just raise your hand. Uh, yeah, well, here I am. I don't get any better. Most writers are bores. That's another truth. Most writers are terrible bores. You meet writers and you think, oh, God, they, they're going to really be interesting. Oh, God. First of all, they have bad breath. Don't stand too close to a lot of writers at cocktail parties. Uh... 
They are bores because they put everything into the work and they have nothing left for themselves and they don't take any risks in their own lives. Taking risks in your personal life is very good for you. It's good for the spirit. Your body never outgrows its need for danger, action, and torment. <laughs> I have four minutes and I want, to, I want to let you know a couple of things about the condition of writing in this country today. We are the last of an endangered species. I don't know how many of you in this room are actually writers and how many of you are parvenus and think you're writers, whatever. But I, ne- I want you to know this. This was written by Jonathan Kozel, whose new book, Illiterate America, is out from Doubleday, and you should read it all. It'll scare the crap out of you. One of the things he says is this. He's talking about illiteracy. He says, tragedy is what we face today. No other word will do. Illiterate citizens seldom vote. Those who do are forced to cast a vote of little worth. They cannot make informed decisions based on serious print information. At best, they may respond to knee-jerk stimuli conditioned solely by the paid political advertisements on TV. For 60 million total marginal and functional illiterate adults, the amputated present of the TV moment represents the end and the beginning of cognition. They live divorced from all the lessons, all the learnings of the past. They vote for a face, a smile, or a style, not for a mind or character or body of beliefs. The number of illiterate adults exceeds by nearly 7 million the entire vote cast for the winner in the 1984 election. 60 million people in this country cannot read our words. 60 million people. The number of illiterates in the United States is more than twice that reported by the press. The estimate of 23 to 27 million is repeated even now in 1985. More than twice that is the actual number. Where do these numbers come from? The original numbers of 23 to 27 million are taken from a study by the Ford Foundation. The Ford study was published in 1979. This is 1985. But it was based, most of its figures, on the Texas adult performance level, a study carried out in 1975, but based on numbers drawn from 1973. The government itself concedes that over 2 million persons have been added yearly to these numbers, yet with a curious reluctance to do some simple mathematics, it fails to tell us that the present figures are at least twice those they quote from studies done 12 years ago. We are talking here 60 million people who are illiterate. I don't know where the audience is going to come from. And writers may be a dying breed. I mean, most of you have converted to word processors already, and you really think you're nifty for it. God knows what you're going to do. I tell you that we live in parlous times. I tell you that writing is a holy chore and must be gone at with what Balzac called, as I said earlier, clean hands and composure. And I tell you that if you do it properly, you fall prey to what Don Marquis, who created Archie and Mahitabel, said. If you make people think they're thinking, they'll love you. But if you really make them think, they will hate you. Thank you. Magic star, oh magic star, you give me poems and I give you power. Oh magic star, hi, how you shine with power. Oh shine, oh shine, magic star, I am lost without you. Now you noticed I have, I have lots of tools I use for poetry. I have my little magic star right here. 
that some people in this workshop gave me last year. And so this is to remind you, this is also a metaphor. So what happens when we write poetry? Are you bored yet? You tired of hearing? You tired of hearing me talk? Um, you get to hear some more chant kinds of things tomorrow. Do you want to write first? Want to write a little bit? You don't want to write? Want to write? Yes. Uh huh. I did a music workshop with kids. They were much, much older. They were like 14. Uh-huh. One of the things I discovered, because I was dealing with a creative process uh -huh. with these kids, uh -huh. was that, that you alluded to it, but didn't go into it, that they seem to lose that magic as they get older. I'm sort of afraid that maybe the school doesn't. You, you talked about that. You see evidence of that. I mean, you're all, we're all kids, and yet we've all been to a school system. I don't think it's not, 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 not. Somehow we lose that magic that we had when we were three or two. Uh, we don't lose it. It just becomes covered up. We get it covered up. Right, which is why we're here and why we're going to do some of the things we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, covering up, it makes us so afraid of going back and we have to go through all the layers and we're afraid of what we might find when we get down. Right. And even the kids themselves are really afraid when they begin to write, you know, as they begin writing. And, uh, you know, so there's no right or no wrong. <laughs> this is wonderful. It was a fifth grader and it was about my third session. And she, this little girl, and she'd written some really pretty cute little poems and I presented the lesson and I was going around with my magic wand and she was just sitting there and she wasn't writing anything and I said and she looked very unhappy and I said well what's the matter and she said I don't know I guess I just have writer's block <laughs> and I looked at her and I said well what's the problem well I just can't do what you said and I can't remember what I even said and I, I, and I asked her, I said, well, what did, what did I say? And she said, oh, well, I don't remember, but I just really want to write a good poem. Mm -hmm. She was trying to get it right. <laughs> and I said, if you're going to start out with saying, at the end, there's going to be a good poem, you know, and, and she was quite sophisticated for her age and, you know, realized that she was a good writer. So she was, you know, already into that. You know, and other kids are just dragging away like crazy. So what stops us from that magic is, you know, I'm, I want to write a good poem. I want to write a really crafted poem. I'm going to write a poem that's just going to say it all. It's going to, you know, really, really be great. And we can never write a great poem starting out with it's really going to be great because we've got to start with the feeling. That is a, thank you. Um, does anybody else have any comments or reactions to anything I've said so far? Because that is always what opens up the ideas. My reaction to poetry is it's always a little slice of life. That's nice. It's not a big thing. You know, I right. think a Dickens and uh, you know, four ducks in a pond. It's a little thing. You know, it's no big thought. But uh, when you look at it, uh, it's about little pond and the four little ducks. Uh, who hasn't seen that? But from that, you get, a, you get an idea, an insight into life that you might not get if you try to write about, you know, here's what life is all about. Mm -hmm. And you can add all these slices up, maybe 10,000, whatever, whatever it takes to make a life. Uh, and that's what poetry is to me. If I take a little thing that bothers me or whatever, and write about it. Um, a big problem that kids have, you know, when I, I was working with kindergartners and first graders, is that 
they're, they're so concerned with getting it right even at that age that I have to already, get, you know, get them to forget about spelling right. And I say, I'm not concerned with spelling, you know, please make up a spelling. I love creative spellings. Uh, you know, anything you write is fine. I'll, I'll get it. I'll, I'll, it's all right. Uh, and you cannot be wrong in a poem. I mean, I, it's just horrifying when this little second grader wrote this thing, which was absolutely good. And she said, will you correct my poem now? You know, and I tell them, you, a poem is not right or wrong. It is not good or bad. It is you. It's the inside of you. And so the, one of the, an exercise that I just adore to do, which we are now going to all do, so pull out some paper. Everybody get some paper out. I hope you have some paper. If not, I've got, I think I've got some. She's really uncomfortable. Oh, we have a Listen, now if you, we're going to write for about 10 minutes. That's all. 15 at the most. Um, if you feel comfortable going outside after I say what I'm going to do, that's fine. But don't go too far away, you know, because you would come back. And we're going to introduce ourselves again with whatever it is that we write right now. And I'm hoping that with whatever it is that you write right now, that'll inspire a, another poem that will come to you tonight that you can bring back tomorrow morning. Um, okay, where is my... I need to read to you. There we are. Before I do this, I, I have to read something that I read this year that really inspires me. Um, have any of you heard of this book, Neruda's Memoirs? It's a marvelous book. I highly recommend it. Neruda talking about um, becoming a poet, how he became a poet. And there's uh, something in here I want to share with you. The word, you know, we were talking about language and how the main character in the poem is the language rather than the plot. Uh, <clears throat> a number of other things. And he's talking about loving words. And poets really love words. They love the sounds of words bumping off each other. But what happens as adults is that we get a little carried away with that. And we use too many words. But here's what Neruda says about the word, which I just love. You can say anything you want. Yes, sir. But it's the words that sing. They soar and descend. I bow to them. I love them. I cling to them. I run them down. I bite into them. I melt them down. I love words so much, the unexpected ones, the ones I wait for greedily or stalk until suddenly they drop. Vowels I love, they glitter like colored stones, they leap like silverfish, they are foam, thread, metal, dew. I run after certain words, they are so beautiful that I want to fit them all into the poem. I catch them in mid-flight as they buzz past. I trap them, clean them, peel them. I set myself in front of the dish. They have a crystalline texture to me, vibrant, ivory, vegetable, oily like fruit, like algae, like agates, like olives. And then I stir them, I shake them, I drink them, I gulp them down, I mash them, I garnish them, I let them go. I leave them in my poem like stalactites, like slivers of polished wood, like coals, pickings from a shipwreck, gifts from the waves. Everything exists in the word. An idea goes through a complete change because one word shifted its place, or because another settled down like a spoiled little thing inside a phrase that was not expecting her, but obeys. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that just beautiful? 
think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said every word was once a poem. And uh, last year we did a little bit with clustering, how you take one word and cluster, and with that one word and see where it takes you in. We're going to be doing some of that too. Okay, I call these I am poems because I think by writing them, one finds the voice and one gets inspired by the inner self, which is what always inspires. Um, how I developed this was from a poem, it's in a book I lent someone and they didn't get the poem back to me so I can't read the original poem in which this exercise, I got this idea, uh, but it was from a poem by F. Scott Lamaday called I Am and in the poem he talks about how he is part of everything that exists in nature and I tell little kids, even little kids about the medicine wheel, you know, how it's uh, you know a metaphor for everything that is and we are related to everything that is and everything that it is is related to everything that we are and so Rather than talking about metaphor and all of this, I say, now, in a poem you can be anything you want to be. So we're going to write I am poems and you just be I am. And whatever it is that you've seen, that you've seen, that you've heard, that you've touched, that you've tasted, that you've smelled, and that you've breathed. Because our poetry comes from air. And breath is a sense. Everything that you have taken into you, everything that you can think of, you put down in this poem. And I'm going to read just a couple of these to you to give you a sensation, an idea. And then, without worrying about being good or correct or right or wrong, I want you to write an I Am poem. And it'll have a natural structure because every couple lines or three lines or five lines or ten, however many you want, will start with I Am. Last year we did I'm the Poet. This year we're doing I Am Anything. I wrote one this morning. What happened to it? I should share some of myself because if you're sharing with me, I should share something of myself. Um, I'll read mine last. I think it's there. Yeah. Okay. This is a fifth grader. I am the light. Oh, let me tell you the story about this poem first. We were talking about this, and he was sitting there, and he said, "I don't know what to write." And I said, um, "Well." Tell me what you like. Have you been any place you really like? Yeah, Las Vegas. I've been to Las Vegas. I said, uh, oh, yeah, Las Vegas. That's a really bright place. What do, you, what do you like about Las Vegas? And he said, oh, I like the lights. I said, I do too. Why don't you just start out? I am the light. And I walked away. And this is what came about to me seven minutes later. I am the light. The light that travels through the loneliness, the emptiness of night. I am the colors, the color of the many-hued rainbow, the fresh spring flowers in the meadow. I am the tear, the tear trickling down a child's face, the weeping of joy into an old woman's hanky lace. I am life. Let's go. Mm, that's good. No, he wrote it in seven minutes. Oh, fifth grade. Fifth grade is what? Seven, eight, nine. Well, you're a fifth grade teacher. We what? Nine? Ten? I know. I don't have no expectations whatsoever. We're here to play. You know? Now, okay. We're here to craft poetry, and I'm saying we're going to play. Because we are. These kids play. These things come out crafted. Most of them. They are there. I mean, I type them up like they write them. 
This was a class they had never written a poem before. This was the first day. Let yourself go. All you need to do to write a poem is get out of your own way. So how do you get out of your own way? You do, you know, Marilee Zedenic, some of the things that Marilee Zedenic does. But you don't even need to do that. All you have to do is picture yourself being 10 or 7 and just go with it. Uh, music helps, and I brought along a tape uh, with some music. So you can write outside and listen to the birds, or you can stay in here and listen to the music. Let me read a couple more. I am a drop of water. I am the breeze that blows the trees. I am a kitten that plays with a ball of string and the sun that warms people. I am a fire blazing for hours. I am the love that two people share. I am a lonely piece of paper floating in the air. I am a drop of water and a blade of grass. That's enough. Um, last night when I discovered to Ian Bernard's chagrin that the poetry workshop had been cut out of the, accidentally cut out of the videotape and he was very upset. And um, which brought me to this idea of remembering this definition of poetry, how, that I like so much, is the poet, uh, the poet is one who writes himself or herself out of existence. Because you go so far in that you go so far out. And, and, and when we were cut out, that reminded me of this. And so um, I went home and, and I was sitting there thinking about today and I just wrote this. See, it's, I mean, it's very fresh. And this is very hard for me to do because I'm doing it first because I want to be brave to read you something that might not be any good and I don't care. <laughs> So this came from I am invisible. I am invisible. Stirring within a wind no one will see. Only know by the way we whisper words no one can spell into the ear. Raging without a war this time the sky is battleground the sky turning in on itself. Go tell the king speaking rhetoric on television. No one here is holding down forts, just images in history books. We could care less or more. Settling within a silence, everyone notes by the way heads turn, looking to see what passes lightly in the dark. That's my eye So, you ready to write? Okay. Let me put on some music, and you can go outside, or you can stay in here, or sit on the floor, and I'm going to get out of the way, and somebody can use this chair if they want to. And then we'll go around, and we'll read some more, and we'll read these, and we'll, uh, we'll talk, and we'll read, and that's it. <laughs> I'll give you about 12 minutes, sir. Now I should have brought my magic wand. Why didn't I think? I'll bring it tomorrow. Sure. Oh, I can turn the TV. 